On the back wall of that lobby behind you, there are six words which are very intentionally chosen. And three of those words are the same words, so it's even easier to remember those six words. They are our church's mission statement, which is very simply making disciples, training disciples, and sending disciples. In six words, or maybe really four words, in a nutshell, what our church does. We call people into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ to receive the good news of the gospel and thereby become disciples of Jesus. And for those that follow Jesus, for those that are his disciples, we dedicate Sunday after Sunday, Wednesday after Wednesday into training you Just what do his ways look like? We open the word over and over to see this. And then we send followers of Jesus out into the world. Somewhat because this is a transient area, right? Many people move in and move out of the area. So every time we take somebody in, it seems like we're also sending somebody out to some other part in the country. We want to send you out ready to proclaim the gospel, ready to walk in holiness in Jesus' ways wherever you go. But not just that. You might notice that on the very last page of every one of our worship guides, the worship services end the same way every time. Page 10 has the four words. We'll read a benediction, and then Paul will say the same four words, go and make disciples. As he lifts his hand and says that to you, he is sending you out into the world for yet another week. We make disciples, we train disciples, and we send disciples. This is what our city needs from us. This is what Greenwood, Indiana needs from us. This is what South Indianapolis needs from us to continue proclaiming the gospel message, calling them to follow him, for everyone who does follow him to train them up in the ways of Jesus and then send you out to do his work. Now, with that on one hand, that's also, by the way, why we are reading through the Bible this year, to train you in following Jesus and the habits of reading his scriptures. We have come now to one of the high points in the scripture in that Bible reading program. And that is Isaiah chapter 6, one of the more famous passages in the Old Testament. Isaiah's famous encounter with the Lord of hosts that leaves him trembling. We've come there, and our plan now is to spend the next two weeks in this chapter asking first, what is it that Indianapolis needs? What do our friends and neighbors need, and how can we bring it to them? And then next week, asking the question, what if our neighbors won't listen? What if we bring the gospel to them and they all say, no thanks? I think it's a fear that's on many of our hearts. What if we keep proclaiming this message and people don't listen? Well, the second half of Isaiah 6 will help us with that. But before we get there, we're going to examine the first eight verses. And we will see the pattern that we pray every person in Indianapolis walks through as they come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Let's read Isaiah 6. The Lord speaks in verses 1 through 8 this morning. The prophet writes, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. 
and with two he flew. And one called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I'm lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. The words of the Lord. What we have in these words is a picture of gospel conversion. That is to say that if you are a follower of Jesus, these words, this process that Isaiah goes through pictures the way in which the Lord brought you to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Or if you would like to become a Christian and a follower of Jesus, This process that Isaiah goes through pictures for you the road that the Lord must take you down before you're ready to receive the gospel, or perhaps already has taken you down. And that is to say that if there is someone you love in your life, or someone you work with that you would desire to bring the gospel to, the process that Isaiah goes through in those verses pictures for you the process the Lord must lead them through on the road to conversion to the gospel of Jesus. Now, what is this gospel that I'm talking about, right? Many of you know it, some of you may not, and it is my joy to proclaim it every week to you. The gospel is the simple news that Jesus Christ died and rose to offer salvation and forgiveness to sinners. And the way that you can receive that is simply by trusting him to secure it for you. It works very simply. If you want to be forgiven by God, you don't do anything to receive it. You trust Jesus to do what needs to be done to earn your forgiveness. Rather than go through a spell or a ritual or some kind of hand-raising ceremony or something like that, no, all you have to do is trust Jesus. He goes and secures forgiveness and salvation for you. For all who would trust him, that is the message of the gospel. John 3.16 says it plainly, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Now that's the gospel, and if you wanted to, you could, you could tweet that, right? You could get that down to 280 characters and put that out on the internet if you wanted to. And so on one hand, very simple message, all you must do is trust in it to be saved. But on the other hand, the process to get there is a bit more complicated. And here's what I mean by that. You are not going to trust Jesus to save you if you do not believe you need to be saved, are you? 
And so in order to receive that good news, the Lord must bring you to a place where you realize, I need to be saved. I need Jesus to save me. What is Jesus saving you from? Jesus is saving you from the consequences of all of our sin. That is eternal judgment and condemnation forever. Well-deserved by our lifestyles. And so we must come to a place where we see, oh, oh goodness, I have, I have sinned against God. I deserve judgment. I deserve condemnation. I am headed for it without forgiveness. You got to be there before you're willing to look to Jesus and say, Jesus, will you save me from this, right? If you're swimming in the ocean, you are not going to call the lifeguard over to save you if you don't believe that you are in trouble, You are not going to pick up your phone and dial 911 until you believe that you are in an urgent situation and need help. And in the same way, before we receive the gospel, the Lord brings us to a point where we realize that we are lost and we need him. And it's a road that we go on to get there. Now, follow the logic with me. If we we trust him to save us, We are believing then that we need to be saved, right? So we must be convicted of coming judgment before we're willing to look to him. Well, if we believe that judgment is coming, we must believe that we have sinned against God, right? You're not going to have any sense of just judgment coming to you if you don't also believe that you have sinned against God. So we come to a place of conviction of sin before we even realize judgment sometimes. And if we're willing to say that we have sinned against God then we must believe then that God has good ways for us to follow, right? There must be some kind of moral law and order to the universe. He must have set it up to work a certain way or else it wouldn't be possible to sin against him, right? If there's no right and wrong, it's not possible to do wrong against God. So we are then admitting that there is a right and a wrong in the universe by admitting that we have done wrong, And if God has good ways that we must follow, then that means we have already accepted the most foundational truth of all. And that is that there is a God in the heavens who is worthy of saying, spend your life worshiping me and following my ways. There is a God great enough that he can say, here is how I want you to live and here is how I want you to worship. And we as his creatures must do it. That is, we believe God is worthy of our worship and our obedience. Now, the Lord must convict us of all of these things before we would get to a point where we would even believe that we need to be saved. That is what he brings the prophet Isaiah through in this chapter. I'm going to walk forwards through it now, so you might, maybe it will make a little more sense. And we have all of these printed out right next to the sermon text in your worship guide. So if you want to, you may want to leave it open and just look at page seven. We have got six gospel truths there. What I'm going to do is walk forward through them so you can see the logic, the, the road that the Lord may have brought you down, or perhaps you need to go down yourself, receiving the gospel and then the new life that comes from it. All right, let's walk forward through it. First truth we have there is the Lord's glory. That is the conviction we come to that there is a supreme God who is Lord over all the universe and who is worthy of our worship and our obedience, that he exists, he is there, and all mankind 
should worship him. There are key scriptures about this. Genesis 1, Psalm 19, this very text in Isaiah. Revelation 4 has many songs about his worthiness. The first conviction we come to when the Lord is bringing us towards salvation is just that he is there and whatever he says goes because he's Lord of the universe. That then leads to the second truth, the Lord's ways. This is the conviction that God has shared with us, how he wants us to live, that there is a real right and wrong in the universe. And it is possible to do the right thing. It is possible to do the wrong thing. Maybe one way you could say this is that God cares what you do and he has made his ways known, both in the conscience of our heart and the clarity of his word. He says, here is how I want you to worship me. Here is how I want you to live. That's the second great conviction we tend to come through. Now, many people who believe those first two things have no trouble looking at their life and believing the third truth, right? If God has a standard of right and wrong, you probably don't have to wind your clock back much to come to a point where you didn't live up to that standard, where you did the wrong thing. And so we come under conviction of our own sin, realizing if God has a standard, I have not met it. And that's a problem that we need to deal with. Now, if we do the math there, God is worthy of our worship and obedience. He has outlined how to live and worship him, and we have refused to do it. Then the fourth truth is terrible to bear, but makes perfect sense. If God cares what we do, there is a day when he will hold us to account. Part of coming to Christ is realizing God is going to hold me accountable for what I have done. And friends, that is terrifying, isn't it? Now, someone who has received those four truths, someone who has been convicted of that, as Jesus says, the Spirit of God convicts the world concerning righteousness, sin, and judgment, right? The ones who have been convicted of that. Then you hear the good news of the gospel, which we have as the fifth truth here. Jesus Christ died to secure forgiveness for sinners. Now, if you are convicted that you have sinned before God and judgment is coming, you might be just ready to jump on that, right? To say, oh, Okay, the way has been made for me to come back to God. Now I am willing to trust him. I am willing to come back. I am willing to trust him to save me. That's the fifth truth, the gospel. And then finally, if you're willing to trust that, what it does, it doesn't leave you there. It makes you new. And now you begin walking in new life. The New Testament says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. It says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it, bring it in the, to completion in the day of Christ. Jesus outlines what that new life looks like, the access we have in prayer, the holiness that we are called to live in as his people. That is the sixth truth new life. Now, before we look in Isaiah 6 and find that pattern in Isaiah's life, uh, let's think for a moment about how we can apply this. First, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you would call yourself a follower of Jesus, one of the big questions that American Christians have to reckon with is, what do I believe Jesus has saved me from? Because men like me have not done the best job of proclaiming judgment and sin in the pulpit, have we? Major theme in the scriptures, very rarely mentioned. 
And so it's possible to come to Jesus thinking I am saving, he is saving me from this problem that I have, saving me from the sorrows in my heart, saving me from my mean ex who was mean to me and my heart still hurts over it, saving me from this health problem that I have. Now, the good news of the gospel is that the root cause of all of those problems, he is saving you from it. He is saving you from our sin as a people and from judgment for our sin as a people. And friend, I want to tell you, if what you're trusting Jesus to save you from is something other than the right consequences for your sin, friend, that is not faith in the gospel of Jesus. No, the gospel is that Jesus' death pays for the sins of sinners. And if you're trusting in it, then you're trusting in that message to save you, that work of Jesus to save you. The very first thing we must do is just reevaluate what am I trusting Jesus to do? Is it to save me from my sin? For some of us, it's just re-looking at that again. And every once in a while, one of our eyes opens and says, oh goodness, I've been living under Jesus' teachings for years and years, but I never actually trusted him to save me from my sin. If that's you, don't delay and trust him to spare you condemnation and judgment. As the scripture says, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, the other way we can apply this before we look for it in Isaiah's life is you probably have people in your life that you want to bring the gospel to, right? And one of the big disconnects right now is we want to go in with the gospel message and say, did you know, friend, that Jesus died and rose to offer forgiveness of sins to you? We want to say this to people who do not believe there is a God at all. And do not believe there is a right and wrong in the world, and therefore don't believe it's possible to even sin against God. And so one of the things you can do is just, if you're a believer and you want to proclaim the gospel to your friends, just think of one person you would really love to see come to Christ in your life. I'm thinking of somebody right now. You can walk through these six truths and say, okay, how far are they along this road? Is that person you're thinking of, do they believe that there is a God in heaven who cares what we do and who is worthy of our worship? If not, that's where you need to start. You need to lead them down the road of conviction so they will turn to the gospel. Now, you can tell them about the good news of Jesus, but you need to start with the fact that there is a God in heaven worthy of their worship. Show them how great God is in creation, in his word. It is not difficult to proclaim how wonderful God is. Start there. Show your friend or your loved one that God is worthy of their worship and that his ways are good. Okay, so let's say maybe are there. Now, secondly, are they convinced that God has ways, that there is a right and wrong in the world, that we ought to be worshiping God? If not, if they're convinced of the first but not the second, now you, now you know where you need to lead them. Lead them from the first to the second. Or perhaps they are convinced on the first two but not of the fact that they have sinned against God. Well, now you know that you're taking them from lily pad two to lily pad three if you want to think of it like that, right? If you're leading someone to Christ, you are leading them down this road and you need to know where they are on the, on the road so that you can lead them farther. Are they convinced of the four, maybe the first three and not the fourth? Well, now you know. You need to just help them do the math and realize that if God has ways and they have sinned against God, there's going to come a day when he holds us account. Or maybe they are all the way there and they realize judgment is real and it's coming. Now, 
focus on the gospel message in their life. Now they're ready to receive it and have been brought to conviction. Now proclaim the gospel the whole time, but just be sensitive to where they are and lead them down that road. That can help you proclaim the gospel to your friends if you would think in terms like that and lead them down that path of conviction. Now, I've said that. Let's walk through Isaiah's experience that we just read about. And I want to show you that that pattern is actually there in Isaiah's life. Several of them are condensed into one verse. He is brought to God's throne room in what appears to be the heavenly sanctuary. And the first thing he comes into contact with is, wow, this God is incredible, right? We see the glory of God painted so majestically in Isaiah's vision. First, in verse 1, He sees the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of the Lord's robe fills the whole temple. So he is brought into that holy and special place where God dwells. Some of you know what it's like if there's maybe a big boss at your company and you go into that boss's office and it's all decorated fancy and you're like, ooh, this is a scary place and kind of an amazing place. You're brought into that awesome place. I wonder, has anybody, just raise your hand if you've ever been in the Oval Office. Anybody here ever been into the Oval Office? I thought maybe the sliders are going to be, oh, awesome, gay has too. Nice. Okay, so three people in this room have been to the Oval Office. I never have. Most of us have seen pictures, right? Can you imagine walking into that room where bills are often signed into law, seeing those couches, seeing, I think it's the presidential seal on the carpet right there, that timeless desk, those curtains behind it, and then there he is in that perfect suit, and he puts down his pen and he looks up at you, right? Now, talking about that is one thing, but I think most of us, if we walked into that room, would kind of like have a moment, right? We'd be like, oh, I'm filled with awe to be in that place where that stuff happens. Well, that little bit of awe and trembling that you might experience walking into the Oval Office, just a glimpse of what Isaiah experiences here. He doesn't go into the Oval Office. He doesn't go before the King of Israel in the throne room. He goes into God's sanctuary in heaven and sees not a perfect suit with a red tie, but the hem of God's robe is filling the whole temple. Just just the hem, just the bottom part of it is too big to even fit in the temple high and lifted up on his throne. Can you sense just a little bit of the shivering that Isaiah would have as he suddenly just sees this incredible thing? And that's only the beginning of it. Above him are these creatures called seraphim, which are some kind of mysterious heavenly creature. The name means fiery ones, so they may be made out of fire or they may work with fire a lot. So there's fire involved somehow because that's part of their name. We know very little about them except that they seem to be kind of servants that surround the throne and sing praise to him all the time. Entire creatures created for this purpose of, of serving and waiting on him perhaps made of fire. They have six wings, it says, but they only fly with two of those wings. 
The purpose of the other four wings is to cover themselves before the Lord God in his glory. Because even these incredible creatures that if you saw, you'd probably be frightened of, even they cannot bear to show themselves to the Lord of hosts. So like a, like a cocoon, they just have themselves shut up in these four wings, two above and two below, because they cannot be in that kind of contact with the glory of God. These fiery creatures are calling to one another, and the song that they sing, or perhaps call to each other, is one that we have built timeless hymns on. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. There is something to those words, isn't there? The whole earth is full of his glory. And as one of them calls out with this sound, the foundations of the building shake and the room fills with smoke. This is a fearful sight. This is a wonderful sight. The presence of the living God. Can you sense just a little bit of what Isaiah might feel as he is seeing this? Well, there is the first step on the road to conversion to the gospel. Sensing whether through creation, maybe you look at the Grand Canyon or some wonderful thing in creation you love, you look up at the stars, you read of the wonders that God has done, and it just hits you. Wow, this God. I, I had better do what he says. I had better worship him. He's, he's worthy of that. It's not tyrannical for him to say, walk in my ways and worship me. He is that great and can ask that of me. So this means then for you to come to the gospel, part of that road the Lord will bring you down is that conviction that God is holy and worthy of your worship. It also means that for your friends and loved ones, for the people that we are trying to reach as a church, we cannot really reach them with the gospel. We can say the words to them, but we cannot really reach them with the gospel message if we do not show them how holy our God is. Why would they care about forgiveness of a God in heaven if that God is not worthy of our worship? If that God is not worthy of requiring us to live a certain way? No, it all begins with the holiness of God. And I'm convinced that one of the reasons that the church's ministry is often ineffective in the States these days is that in so many churches, that sense that we are meeting with a holy God is completely gone. In some churches, replaced with a sense of sweet nostalgia that feels great but does not bring us into contact with the holy God who demands everything from his followers. In other churches, filled with this awe-filled technological spectacle where there is indeed shaking of the floor, but it's not because of the singing of an angel or angelic creature. It's because you have 22-inch subwoofers that are shaking the floor. And there is indeed smoke all over the place and flashing screens, but it's not because of the angelic fiery creatures. It's because you paid 200 bucks for a smoke machine and you get smoke on the stage, right? Some leaving church feeling like, oh, that felt like home and that was so nice and so sweet. Others leaving church saying, wow, that was incredible. Did you see that presentation they had on the screens? Feeling the awe and wonder, but not feeling it before the God of hosts. No, feeling it before technology and entertainment. 
Now, there's nothing wrong with good technology, and there's nothing wrong with the beauties of the past either. Great problems happen when either one replaces the holiness of God in worship. The foremost thought on our minds when we're here should be that we are meeting with the God of the universe. That's the priority. And that means that reaching our neighbors and our loved ones means worshiping him like he is holy. Why would they care about the gospel message that they hear if our worship tells them that God is only so-so and doesn't really have the authority to require this of us? Now, the holiness of God is where it begins. This also means that if you want to win lost people in your life to Jesus, and if you want to live the, win the children in your home to Jesus, one of the best things you can do is live like God is holy in front of them. They need to come face to face with the holiness of God. And one of the best ways your kids are going to see that is the other six days of the week, you living like he is holy. The best way that your friends at work are going to see that is five days a week living in front of them like God is holy. Then maybe they will see the holiness of God. Then maybe they will come under the conviction that is necessary to come to the gospel. So that's the first point, right? God's holiness. Isaiah sees it and he trembles at the holiness of God. Second, and really second, third, and fourth are kind of wrapped up into one for Isaiah, right? He sees God's holiness, and his response is there in verse five, right? I'll read it to you again. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amidst a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Here we have explicitly, he is admitting that he has sinned against God. He and his people have sinned with their lips against God, which implies that God has ways, right? You can speak in a right way and speak in a wrong way. That must be true if Isaiah is saying he spoke the wrong way. And so we have judgment explicitly as well. He says, woe is me, right? He knows I have sinned, and now I sense it even more because I see his holiness, and my eyes, they've seen the king, woe to me. Oftentimes, this is what happens when we come into contact with God's holiness. We then see how sinful we are. We then see how serious his ways are. We then see that if we have refused to follow him, it can only spell doom for us. And Isaiah knows this. He recalls the commandments in the law. You shall not bear false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall not swear falsely. When you make a vow, you should fulfill what your lips have said. He recalls commandments like this. And seeing God's holiness says, I am a man of unclean lips. And some of us, just that there is enough to convict us. Right? We see how good and holy he is. We consider the things we have said with our mouths and say we are people of unclean lips. We are people who have tried to bite each other with our words. We are people who have grumbled against God with our words and cursed and used profanity and said awful things about women with our words. And our eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This will move your heart to say along with Isaiah, woe to me. I'm not worthy 
to be in his presence. And yet one day, we'll go before his presence on the day of judgment. So there we are left the same way he is saying, woe, woe to me. This also is a part of coming to Christ Jesus, right? We must be convicted of our sin and of judgment to come to him. And those that we love must be convicted of it as well. There are some some simple tools you can use, really a few things you can remember. If you've got a friend who believes in God but thinks that their conduct is good enough, uh, one really simple thing you can do is just try to communicate to them what God's standard is, which is very simply that you live every moment of your life in worship of him and walk every moment of your life in his ways, right? That's all you have to do for God to approve of your life and for you to get into heaven. Now, when you said that, you didn't call them a sinner, right? You didn't really say anything offensive, but anybody who hears those words and evaluates those li- the, their lives knows, right? I have not lived up to that standard. If you can just communicate the standard to them. Or sometimes, You just need to show your friends that in their hearts, they want judgment as well. Many people today are railing against enemies in the public, people that they believe are doing terrible things and often who are doing terrible things. Well, all you have to ask them is, okay, do you want this person to go before God and receive what is coming to them for what they have done? Or do you want to live in the world where both Adolf Hitler and you suffer the same fate and it doesn't really matter what you do? Which world would you rather live in? Under a just God who cares what we do or under an unjust God who maybe even doesn't exist and all of us just get to rot on the ground no matter what we have done? No, everybody wants what we have done to matter. If you can show them that that is in their heart as well, then they can see how good God is to judge the earth and that we actually, in a sense, kind of want him to do that. Two tools that can help you there. After Isaiah is brought to this point of woe, this point where he sees what his sin has brought upon him, we then see the gospel of Jesus symbolized in two ways, though it's not proclaimed explicitly and it's never proclaimed explicitly in the Old Testament. The New Testament is very clear in the Old Testament just alluded to. We see it in two symbols here in verse 8. One of the seraphim flies to him, and it has in his hands a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Now, that would call to mind two things to an ancient Hebrew mind. First, there was the sacrificial system in the temple. And when there's a fire and coals by an altar, good Hebrew person knows what that means. A sacrifice has taken place, right? The animal is being burned there. One of the coals is coming. So they are thinking of sacrifice as they see those coals, the fire by the altar. Sacrifice. That's the first one. The other is fire, which in the Old Testament and in the New is a symbol often of God's presence, right? When the Lord appears to Moses through a bush, how does he appear? Through a burning bush, right? Fire. When he leads Israel through the desert, it's a pillar of a cloud of smoke by day, right? And at night, what is it? A pillar of fire. At Pentecost, when the Spirit of God comes down, what comes and anoints everybody's tongue? It's fire, right? Fire often calls to mind the presence of a holy God who is even called in the scriptures a consuming fire. 
And so there are kind of two symbols going on here at once. On one hand, a sacrifice has taken place in which the death of something is paying for the sins of the person. That's how those sacrifices worked. And a coal comes out and touches him, so it's given to him in that way. And on the other hand, the coal is still burning, right? It's still flaming, and so this flame comes and touches him. We have there are two allusions to the gospel. The sacrifice of Jesus' death on the cross, the ultimate fulfillment of all the Old Testament sacrifices, paying for our sins. And also, in the flame coming to touch Isaiah, the very presence of God coming to him, being united to him, and he is now one with this one who has touched him. No longer is there separation between him and the fiery one of Israel. No, now they are connected as the coal has touched his lips. These mirror New Testament truths for us. Jesus' death pays for all of the sins of his people as a perfect sacrifice applied to us. And his very presence comes to us, lives within us, and brings us into union with Christ Jesus. These things symbolized, foreshadowed in the experience that Isaiah has here. And so the sixth truth then is new life. Once this happened, it changes you, right? Now, Isaiah was speaking just a moment ago about woe, wasn't he, right? Now the coal has touched his lips and he hears not the voice of an angel, but the voice of God saying, who will go for us? And his response is very different now. Let's look at verse, I believe it's verse eight. Yeah, let's look at verse eight. He says, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And does Isaiah have a voice full of woe now? No, he does not. He says, here I am, send me, right? My sins are paid for. This God has forgiven me. Everything is changed. Now you want to send me? I will go, right? The lips that used to be unclean, that used to utter filth and terrible things, now they have been touched by the burning coal. And now what will they do? They will proclaim the excellency of the one who sent him. Here is a man who is eager to go and be part of what God is commissioning. That is just one part of the new life, a mouth that is changed and says different things now. Most particularly, going from whatever we used to talk about before to now proclaiming the words that he gives us. For an Old Testament prophet proclaiming the covenant that was given in the book of Deuteronomy. For New Testament Christians proclaiming the new covenant, salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. As he says, go and make disciples of all nations, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And our heart wants to respond the same way as Isaiah's. Here I am, send me. Did you say go? I think I heard you say go. I would like to go. Send me, right? That is the heart of a New Testament Christian who has been changed by God's good news. As, as Jesus says in a different way in the book of Acts, you will receive power. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and even the uttermost parts of the earth. How does a heart that has been changed respond to that? We say, just like Isaiah, here I am, send me. That is the voice of the new life and the new heart as it is sent out in the world. Or as it says, saved to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Christian, have you wondered why God would save you 
and then leave you here on earth to continue suffering this imperfect life in this imperfect world? If he loves you as much as he says he does, why don't he just take you straight up to heaven and into paradise? Have you ever wondered that? There's a reason. You've been called like this so that you can proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You are here with a mission. The reason he has not come back yet to receive us into his kingdom is that there are still more to come into the kingdom. And he wishes to use us to bring the good news to him. Now, a heart that has been changed by the gospel hears that and says, send me. I want to go. I want to proclaim those excellencies. And so that's where we leave it today. Indianapolis desperately needs gospel proclaimers who have been genuinely converted to Jesus Christ. My prayer is that of the hundred or more of us that are here right now, he would make that out of every single one of us, that we would go forth, we'd hear the words, go and make disciples in just a few moments, and go out ready to proclaim the excellencies of him that called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Next week, we will pick up at verse 9. And we will ask the hard question that I think is on a lot of your hearts. What if we keep proclaiming this message and nobody listens to us? Is that possible? And if so, what do we do then? If that's burning in your mind, come back here next week. And if God gathers us again and gives me the breath, we will talk about that. In the meantime, let's pray together.